what do you celebrate? And what are the things that really get you fired up? That really get you excited? What are the things in life that you celebrate? Well, I would submit to you that those things you celebrate the most indicate your priorities in life. You, you celebrate the things that get you excited. So you celebrate the things that are high on your priority list. We're going to learn from the Apostle Paul this morning some things that we ought to celebrate, some things that ought to be on our radar screen, the things that we ought to get excited about that are bigger than just this life that we're living. And we'll see this in the book of Colossians. Turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. We are continuing our study, which we started last week, line by line, verse by verse, through this wonderful letter that Paul wrote. Colossians chapter 1, we will begin reading in verse 3. And I want to ask you today to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. If you're physically able. Colossians 1 verse 3. The Bible says to the saints. Uh, verse 3 I'm sorry. To the, to, we give thanks to God. Verse 3. The Father our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith. In Christ Jesus. And the love which you have. For all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow bond servant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Lord, for your, your corporate presence. Your word says that when two or three are gathered together in your name, you're there. And we believe that by faith. We know you're here. And Lord, I ask that you would make your corporate presence, which is a very significant reality, manifest. That we, would, that we would feel you in this place. That we would leave knowing we've encountered the living God. Holy Spirit, would you use the word? As we dig into the Bible, would you use it in significant ways in our lives? Encourage us, inspire us, admonish us, correct us. Do a mighty work in our lives for the glory of your great name. And Lord, I ask you to establish my steps today in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We began our study of Colossians last week, and we saw that the book of Colossians is in reality a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae, located in Asia Minor. Now, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go to our website or go to iTunes and find Longview Pointcast on iTunes and listen to that sermon because it sets the foundation for the remainder of this study. 
But we said last week that as we put the pieces together, as we look at the timeline of the book of Acts and look at some internal clues in Colossians and in other letters that Paul wrote, we see that Paul was writing this letter somewhere around 61 or 62 A.D., and he was writing it from a prison cell in Rome. This probably was written during his first Roman imprisonment. Now, we know what happened. We know that probably during Paul's time of ministry in Ephesus, he was there for a couple of years, uh, a man named Epaphras heard the gospel. And he went from Ephesus about 100 miles back to his hometown of Colossae in the Lycus River Valley, and he shared this gospel message, and folks got saved, and a church started in Colossae, and we know that this church was meeting in the home of a man named Archippus. And that's what we uh, glean from uh, the letters of Paul and the book of Acts. As Paul begins this letter, writing to this church in Colossae, he begins with a brief but profound word of greeting. Then he gets into the meat of what he wants to talk about. You see, at some point, Epaphras had left Colossae and gone to where Paul was in Rome and shared with him how the church was doing. This was years after it was started. And he shares with them some, with Paul some, some information about this church. So in response to what he had heard from Epaphras, Paul is writing to address certain issues and commend certain strengths in this church. And so he begins the letter by listing some reasons why he is thankful. Now, he's getting ready to pray some things for them, found in chapter, uh, verses 9 through 12 in chapter 1. But before he asks God for anything, he celebrates. Everybody say celebrate. He celebrates what God is doing. And I want you to see what Paul celebrates, because remember what I said. What you celebrate indicates your priorities. And we're going to see the priorities of Paul's life and ministry by looking at the things that he celebrates. And we're going to learn from Paul what we ought to celebrate. And there are three things in this text that I believe we as believers in Christ ought to celebrate. Now, just heads up, we're not going to get through all three points. We're going to get through the first two. So just relax. I'll get you out on time. We're only going to finish two points because there's so much in this passage. We'll pick up point three next week. And so next week will be celebrate part two, okay? And I'm telling you, next week's stuff is good, so be here next week for that. But I want to give you some things we ought to celebrate as believers in Christ. Number one, we ought to celebrate the work of God in others. The work of God in others. Now, as I was studying this passage, I was convicted about my own life. Often in my life, I thank God for his physical blessings, and I thank God for his spiritual blessings. But one thing I don't thank God enough for is his work in other people. And, and if we're not careful, we'll neglect to, to get our eyes off of ourselves and look at others and see what God is doing in others. I believe that if we will begin to look at other people's lives around us, we will see the fingerprints of God everywhere. And we'll begin to celebrate God's grace, not just in our life, not just in our family, we'll begin to celebrate God's grace that is manifest in so many people around us. And it's significant to see God at work in that way. So I want you to see what Paul is, is thankful for here. The work of God that Paul is mentioning in the lives of the Christians in Colossae. First of all, in this Thanksgiving portion of the letter, he is thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's simple, isn't it? He's thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since, here's what he's thankful for, since we heard of your faith 
in Christ Jesus. So Epaphras came to Paul, said there's a church in Colossae now. There's a group of Christians in that city. They meet in the home of a man named Archippus, and he's telling them that there were some Christians in this city who had been encountered by the gospel. And Paul says, I'm thankful for your faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, he's going to go on to mention their love and their hope. And as you study the New Testament, you see faith, hope, and love often mentioned together in the same passage. But it's significant to notice that Paul begins here with faith. I like what Peter O'Brien writes. He says, the faith of the Colossians is naturally mentioned first, for apart from it there would be no Christian existence. So Paul understands, I could not thank God for your love and your hope if you were not people of faith in Christ. Because if you were not people of faith in Christ, you would not know the Lord. You would not be safe. So he's thankful for their faith. Now, two things I want you to see about this faith that the Colossians exhibited and lived out. Number one, I want you to see the object of their faith. The object of their faith. The object of their faith is Jesus. He says there, we heard of your faith, verse 4, in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. Faith does not save. Faith in Jesus Christ saves. Now, I, I say that because there are many different world religions in our nation, in, 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 in society, different ideas and worldviews and beliefs and thoughts, and, and those world religions have some aspect of faith in them. You've got to believe something. And there are some folks that believe, well, if your faith is just sincere in whatever you believe in, then that's what you need to, to get you into heaven or paradise or whatever you believe in. You just need to have sincere faith. But it's not just the nature of your faith, it's who your faith is in. You see, Jesus said over in John 14, 6, during his time on the earth, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if you want to know the Father, if you want to experience forgiveness, if you want to go to heaven when you die, your faith has to be in Jesus Christ. It's not just faith, it's faith in the right object, faith in Christ, Christ alone saves. He's saying there, I'm, I'm grateful, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Christ Jesus. The object of their faith was Christ. Secondly, the outcome of their faith is salvation. The outcome of their faith is salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ saves. Consider Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It mentions their, their faith is what saves them and gives them peace with God. Think about Romans 10, verse 9, where Paul writes, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, that's faith, believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. What about good old John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe, that's faith, believe in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So the object of their faith was Jesus and the outcome of their faith was salvation. And Paul's saying, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful you've, you've come to know Christ. I'm grateful that you're experiencing salvation. I'm thankful for your faith. Now listen to me. When's the last time you thank God that someone else was saved? I mean, we thank God often for our own salvation, hopefully. When's the last time you, you took your eyes off yourself and looked at someone else and said, I'm thankful that they're saved. 
I'm thankful that they've met Christ. Paul was thankful for their faith in Christ. Secondly, he is thankful for their love for each other. Now look what Paul says there in verse 4. I'm thankful, he says in verse 3, to God. He says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And so Epaphras journeyed from Colossae to Rome. He told Paul, listen, there are some Christians there in Colossae. They know Christ. They're saved. They're meeting in a home. And, and you need to understand, Paul, they really love each other. And Paul's writing to them to say, I've heard about your love. And I'm grateful for your love. Now, now what is love? A lot of misconstrued ideas about love. We don't really understand what love is. I'm giving you a brief definition of love. Love is spirit-empowered affection. Now, wait, why do you say spirit-empowered? Well, look in verse 8. Verse 8, he's talking about Epaphras here. He says, he also informed us of your love in the spirit. So their love was motivated and made possible by the work of the indwelling Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was helping them to love each other. Which, by the way, that's important. You, you, listen, you can't love others the way that they need to be loved apart from God's work in your life. Right? That's a good, by the way, that's a good marriage principle. You can't love your spouse without God's wor love working in you to help you to love them the way they need to be loved. You need to let, you know what? If we would just let Jesus in our marriages... Can you imagine what would happen as we began to really love each other, empowered by the Spirit, modeled by Christ? Can you imagine what a difference that would make? Love is Spirit-empowered affection for others. Listen, that manifests itself through actions. Love is not just a feeling. It's not just a warm-hearted feeling towards another. It's, it's an affection that's so strong that you want to do something that you want to serve them, that you want to help them, that you want to bless them. It's, it's spirit-empowered affection that, that manifests itself through actions. Over in Galatians 5, verse 6, Paul said, here's what matters. Faith working through love. In other words, the evidence that you've truly been saved is that you will love others. So he's thankful for their love. Now, love is the chief virtue of Christianity. I mean, it's what it's all about. Without love, you don't have Christianity. You can't practice Christianity without love. Think about what Jesus said when he was encountered by a lawyer that asked him what's the greatest commandment in the law. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus was asked, what is it all about? What's the central tenet of, of relating to God and knowing God and living for God? Jesus says, it's all about love. Loving him, loving others, it is the, the central tenet, the, the central uh, part of what it means to know Christ. It's the chief virtue of Christianity. So we need to figure this out. And let the Spirit have his way in our life if we're going to love the way we're supposed to love. And I want you to notice that these Christians in Colossae loved all the saints. Look what he says there in verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, you've heard me say this before. The word all is a small word with big implications. And he says there, you love all the saints. Now, we are good at loving people that are easy to love, right? 
But everyone in this room has people in their life that are easy to love. Wait for it, wait for it. And people in their life that are difficult to love. Sometimes because of personality, because of background, whatever, we, don't just, we, just, don't, we just don't mesh well with other folks, even believers in Christ. And, and, and as long as we're on this earth, there are going to be folks in our life that are easy to love, folks in our life that are difficult to love. But here is the true marker of knowing Christ, that you truly love them all. That you have a, an affection empowered by the Spirit for everyone, even those that are more difficult for you to love. That's the marker of, of knowing Christ. Over in 1 John, John writes, if, if you don't have a love for the brethren, you're not saved. You're not right with him. Because one of the characteristics of those that really know Christ is a, is a, a love, a growing love for the brethren. And so if you have no love for others, maybe it's because there's no Jesus in your life. And listen, if you don't see a growing love in your life, maybe, maybe that's because you've become stagnant in your Christian journey. They loved all the saints. I love this quote from David Garland. I put it there in your notes. I want you to circle this, and, and I want you to meditate on this quote throughout the week. David Garland writes, This love, the love that Paul speaks of, is a force within that seeks release by giving itself to others, not a vacuum that selfishly craves to be filled by what others can give to us. True disciples of Christ, inspired by love, intend every action to bring benefits to others. Wow. Wow. So are you more of a, of a person that has love, ready to just break out of your life into other people's lives, or are you a vacuum? It just sucks the life out of others because it's all about you. Which one are you? The love that Paul's talking about is that love that's a, a spirit-empowered affection that just breaks out of our life and flows into the lives of others looking for their benefit and their blessing. So Paul's saying, I'm grateful that you know Christ, you have faith in Christ. I'm grateful that you love each other, you love all the saints. And then he says, I'm thankful that you have hope. Look what he says in verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So this, this hope is the basis for your faith and your love. That, that this hope is the basis for your Christian life. Now that you know Christ, you have hope in your life. Douglas Moo, the New Testament scholar, writes that hope is the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come what hope is listen to me our hope is not based upon the here and now if our hope came from the things of this world we would be miserable creatures would we not because have you figured out yet that life is hard have you discovered that life doesn't always go the way you want it to go or intend for it to go We're just hoping in the things of this world? That's miserable. Paul says, I'm grateful of, for your hope. Look what he says, laid up for you in heaven. He's talking about eternity here. The reason you have hope is because of what's waiting for you, not because of what you're experiencing in the here and now. So here's the question. What's waiting for us in heaven? What, what is being stored up in heaven 
that can give us such great hope, such confident expectation in the here and now. Well, let me give you five things. Five things waiting for us in heaven. This will encourage you. Number one is sinlessness. Sinlessness. Question, anybody blow it last week? Raise your hand if you blew it last week. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, you're lying and you just blew it right then. How many still struggle with your old sin nature? Raise your hand. I do. I do. And you do as well. And not only do we struggle with our old sin nature, which is constantly trying to pull us in the wrong direction, we're bombarded by ungodly messages from this world. Constantly trying to lead us astray. And, and, and by the way, the enemy, Satan, is trying to destroy our lives. And to be honest with you, that pull of the flesh and that bombardment from the world and the attacks of the enemy can get really, really tiresome. There's coming a day when we will be free from the very presence of sin. When we get to heaven, God will eradicate our old sin nature. And there'll be no ungodliness there for us to be bombarded by. And, and guess what? Satan won't be there either. And when we get to heaven, we will experience the joy of sinlessness. Over in 1 John chapter 3, the Bible says, we will see him, speaking of Jesus, and when we see him, we will be like him. We will be sinless just like Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And so if you're weary and weighed down with the struggles of this life, you can have hope. Hope that when you get to heaven, there'll be no more struggle with sin. No more battling with your own weakness. No more attacks from the world and the enemy of our soul. When we get to heaven, sin will not be there. Now you know sin disrupts our relationships, doesn't it? The reason we struggle with the relationships on every level is because we're sinners. Right? The reason we struggle with our relationships on every level is because we're sinners, right? Am I the only sinner in the room? But guess what? In heaven, there'll be no sin there. So can you imagine what that will mean for your relationships? Can you imagine the depth of unity you'll have with your brothers and sisters in Christ? That would be incredible. And did you know that sin disrupts our closeness to the Lord? Did you know that? Now, when we're his children, we'll, we'll always be his children. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Once he's our father, he's always our father. But sin can disrupt our closeness or our fellowship with him. Well, guess what? In heaven, there'll be no sin. So there'll be nothing to hinder your intimacy with Christ. Nothing to in, in, hinder your closeness with the Father. There's so many implications that flow from the reality that there will be no sin in heaven. And that gives us hope. That's what's waiting for us. That's what he says there. You have hope based upon those things laid up for you in heaven. Sinlessness. That's what's waiting for. Secondly, inheritance. Inheritance. 
1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, speak of the blessed hope that Christians have because of the risen Lord Jesus. And it goes on to mention that all of those that know Christ have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us, being protected by the power of God, ready to be revealed in the last days. Now, I don't know what that is. But as children of God, when we get to heaven, there's an inheritance waiting for us. I don't know what it's going to consist of, but it'll be awesome. God's our Father. Like a good father, he will have an inheritance waiting for his children. Now, my earthly father, he tells me when I call him, he's spending my inheritance. As a matter of fact, when we were down there visiting this summer, we were driving out of town. We dropped Dad off at a motorcycle store. So he could spend some more of my inheritance. Right? But guess what? My hope is not in any earthly inheritance. You know, I've seen people as a pastor, you know, officiating funerals and, and ministering to hurting families. I've seen people fight like cats and dogs over their loved one's inheritance. Like that, you know, few hundred or thousand dollars in your bank is really going to make a difference in your life. Who cares about stuff? Listen, have you discovered yet that stuff doesn't satisfy? If you haven't learned that lesson yet, learn it today. Stuff does not satisfy your soul. As a matter of fact, stuff can make you miserable because when you get stuff, you just want more stuff. Our, our hope is not in the stuff of this life. Our hope is found in the inheritance that the Father has waiting for us. Something that no one in this life can take away from us because we are children of God. That's hope, right? That's confident expectation. Let me give you a third thing waiting for us in heaven. Reward. It just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Just, I mean, there's so much here. Reward is waiting for us in heaven. We don't know what that reward will consist of. Paul mentions in a couple places crowns. will be crowned with a, a reward and and it mentions over in Revelation that the elders have these crowns, and we see them casting them at the feet of Jesus, casting them at the throne of Jesus as an act of worship. So I don't know what all that will look like, but we know there are rewards waiting for us in heaven. And here's the application of that in your life and my life. Nothing we ever do for Jesus goes unnoticed. There are probably some in this room this morning that are weary. You're weary because you're serving the Lord. You're trying to do your best and live for Him and live for His glory. And no one seems to notice and no one seems to care. And, and you're weary in that service. You're weary in that devotion. But listen to me. When you do something for the glory of Christ, you know who sees it? He sees it. And the Bible indicates to us that there will be glorious rewards for the faithful in heaven. And that's what's waiting for us. Rewards. How incredible will that be? To have our Savior present to us rewards for our faithfulness. That's our hope. That nothing we do for Christ goes unnoticed. That's why it says over in Galatians, do not grow weary in doing good. Some of you are weary in doing good. Don't grow weary because Christ sees it all and Christ will reward your faithfulness. Next, what's waiting for us in heaven? Oh, this is good. Our saved loved ones are waiting for us in heaven. 
1 Thessalonians 4 indicates what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. That, that chapter tells us that when Jesus returns, those who died after they met Christ will be resurrected. And their souls that went to be with Jesus immediately when they died will be reunited with their new glorified resurrected bodies. And they'll get those resurrected bodies and they will go to heaven in those resurrected bodies. Also, those who are alive during that time that know Christ will be caught up in the air, the Bible says. Some people call that the rapture. Caught up in the air. And it says that we'll all be together. The ones that died in Christ, those that know Christ, they're still living, will be caught up in the air. There'll be this great reunion in the sky. And Paul says, comfort one another with these words. It should bring us comfort to know that one day, because of the grace of God, because of the work of Jesus, we will be reunited with our loved ones that knew Christ. That's why the old hymn says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. You know, you've only lost something if you don't know where it is. And often when we talk about losing our loved ones, we use the phrase, we lost them. My mother, you, you know this, passed away a couple of years ago. But we didn't lose mom. I know where she is. And one day, when it's all said and done, and the dust settles on human history, I will be with her in heaven. Listen to me, that's hope. And there's nothing in this life that can give you that kind of hope. Hope beyond death. Hope beyond the grave. That, that's what's waiting for us in heaven. Our saved loved ones are waiting for us in heaven. And then, what's waiting for us in heaven? I save the best for last. Our great God. Which, by the way, That's what makes heaven, heaven. It's where the Lord is. I want you to hear my heart. What makes heaven, heaven is not streets of gold, even though that will be pretty impressive. What makes heaven, heaven is, is not the, the mansion that Christ is preparing for you right now, even though that will be awesome. What makes heaven heaven is, is not the crystal sea or, or the, the new Jerusalem surrounded with jewels on all its gates and walls. What makes heaven heaven, it's that's where the Lord will be. And we get to be with him. Our great God. Over in Revelation 21, read this when you have a chance. We didn't go to all these verses. When you're unpacking this, this sermon next week in your connect group. I read these verses. They're so powerful. But in Revelation 21, the Bible says when we get to heaven, listen, listen, listen. God himself, that's what the Bible says, God himself will wipe every tear from your eyes. God himself will wipe every tear from your eyes. That was worth you coming this morning to hear that. When we get to heaven, 
we get the blessing of God Himself. Unhindered fellowship. Unceasing worship and praise. Unbelievable blessing in the presence of our God. That's hope. And Paul says, I'm thankful that you have that hope. Hope based upon those things waiting for you, laid up for you in heaven. Paul's thankful for the work of God in others. You know, growing up playing sports, I got trophies for different things, different accomplishments, and having my kids in sports, they get trophies for different things. And, and you know what that's like. Trophies are meant to, to speak of, of, of an accomplishment or reward. You know what the Bible says? I want you to hear me on this. The Bible says that those that know Christ are trophies of grace. And Paul, listen, takes his eyes off of himself. And he just begins to look around. He looks at the church of Colossae and says, You know what I see in Colossae? I see trophies of grace. I see the goodness of God reflected in your life. That's what I see. So let's learn to be like Paul. Let's stop living in our own little bubble. And, and, and living with blinders on, and let's lift up our eyes and look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and celebrate when we see the fingerprints of God everywhere. Paul celebrates the work of God in others. Number two, and we'll be through with this point. Again, we won't get to number three until next week. Paul celebrates the power and impact of the gospel. He's so excited about the gospel look what he says there in verse 5 he says you have faith and hope uh, faith and love but because the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth what what words he talking about what message is he talking about He, he defines it the gospel that word gospel literally means good news that's what it means and the good news is this you and i have rebelled against a holy god and our sin has separated us from him, and because of our sin and rebellion, we deserve his wrath, we deserve his punishment in that awful place called hell. That's bad news. The good news is coming. You see, the good news is that Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much, he left the splendor and the the glory of heaven. And he came to earth and he took on human flesh. And As God on earth, he lived a perfect life. He did not sin. John 10 tells us that he, of his own accord, went to the cross. He said, I laid down my life on my own initiative. And when he went to the cross, here's what he did. He took all of your sin and all of my sin on his own shoulders. And then when he's on that cross... The wrath of God, the punishment that our sin deserves, was poured out upon Christ. God the Father punished God the Son in our place. Christ died for our sins. He paid it all. All to Him we owe. And after He died on the cross, He was buried. And early on the third day, early on the Sunday morning, He defeated death itself. He rose from the dead, which indicated that the Father had accepted His sacrifice on our behalf. It it indicated that He was more powerful than death itself, that He could indeed give us eternal life. He rose from the grave 
So Christ did something in human history. He died. He rose from the grave so we can be saved. That's good news. And Paul says this, this faith and this love and this hope is based upon the message you heard from Epaphras, the gospel, the good news. Now I want to say just several things about the gospel, and we'll be through, that come from this text. First of all, the gospel is truth. Verse 5, he says, You previously heard in the word of truth. Everybody say truth. The gospel. So Paul indicates that this message you heard from Epaphras, this gospel message, the death the burial, the resurrection of Christ is a true message which distinguishes it from all the false messages out there. Now in Colossae, Asia Minor, first century, there was no shortage of religious discussion. There was no lacking of religious views. All sorts of gods and, and worldviews and ideas were were kind of brought together in this area, kind of a melting pot of religion in this Asia Minor area. But Paul says, you heard the truth that cuts through all of those false views like a hot knife through butter. You heard the gospel. And I want you to know that America is much like Asia Minor. Everywhere you go, you see different religious views, don't you? different ideas and belief systems that are held up for us to consider. But out of all those different options, there's one message that is truth. The gospel is truth. That's what he says. It's truth. Secondly, the gospel is a message of grace. I believe that there's one thing that would bring revival to the church again, it would be for us to apprehend and comprehend in a greater way the grace of God. I believe one of the reasons we're so cold is because we've forgotten how wonderful and amazing God's grace really is. And look what Paul says here in this passage, verse 6. He says, this gospel has come to you. You've heard this message. Just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood, watch this, the grace of God in truth. So this message about Jesus is a message of grace. In other words, all that I said Jesus did for us, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, we don't deserve that. We deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's punishment. We deserve eternal separation. But God loves us and offers us as, as a, an act of grace salvation the word grace means undeserved or unmerited favor it's god offering something to us that we do not deserve listen to me here's the gospel the gospel is not that you work to achieve something so god will let you into heaven the gospel is god's done everything that's required for you to be saved believe in him and receive the free gift of eternal life that's the gospel you see, other world religions spell, the, spell their view of salvation D-O, do. you got to do something to be saved. you got to do something to, for God to accept you. But the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. It's already been done. Jesus did it all. Just rest in him. Believe in him. It's a message of grace, not works. You cannot earn your salvation. You've got to receive 
The gift of God through Jesus Christ is a message of grace. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it, but I'm grateful for it. And I'm telling you, if we would just get a hold of grace again in the church, if we would understand the amazing grace of God anew and afresh, revival would be soon to follow. Our, our, listen, our cold hearts would catch fire if we would once again understand that amazing grace saved a, saved a wretch like me. The gospel is a message of grace. Next, the gospel bears fruit. This speaks of spiritual growth. Look in verse 6. So the gospel has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you. So he's saying the gospel is bearing fruit in you. This speaks of spiritual growth. When you meet Jesus, I, I want you to hear me. And I know I'm fired up this morning, but I can't help it. Listen, when, when, when you meet Jesus, something's going to change. You cannot encounter the Lord of the universe that defeated death itself and something not change. So if there's no change in your life, maybe there's no Jesus in your life. Because when you meet Jesus, the gospel, the, the message you receive will bear fruit. Good things will begin to come out of your life because God's at work in you. That's the gospel. It's a message of, 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 of fruit bearing. It's a message of spiritual growth. Things will change when you encounter the Savior. And also the gospel advances with power. This speaks of numeric growth. Look in verse 6. The gospel has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So saying this message you heard, the gospel is bearing fruit in your life, but also in many others' lives, because the gospel is increasing. More and more people are getting saved. And I want you to know this morning, there's something much bigger happening in our world today than just the salvation that you enjoy and I enjoy. There's something much bigger happening in our world than just Longview Point Baptist Church. It's called the kingdom of God. And as people hear the gospel and receive Christ, Christ's reign takes over their hearts and his kingdom expands as the gospel goes forth. I want you to know, the gospel is advancing with power, just like it was in Paul's day. Uh, listen to me. If the gospel did not advance in the first century, you never would have heard the gospel in your life. It somehow made it to you, right? And it's making it to others as well. That's what God's doing in the world. Redemption for his glory. And then last, or next to last, the gospel must be shared. Look in verse 6. He said, the gospel has come to you. So you it, as in all the world, it, it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it. So there's a time when Epaphras rode into town, and they actually heard this good news message. And look what it says in verse 7. He says, you learned it from Epaphras. Now, that word learned it, it comes from the word mathete, which is the word for disciple or discipleship. And what Paul's indicating by using this word is this. Epaphras did not ride into town and give them a flimsy outline of the gospel. It speaks of the reality that, that Epaphras gave them systematic instruction in the gospel. In other words, he gave them the entire story. Now, I want you to understand that things have changed in our culture. You understand what's happening? There's a major shift happening in our culture right now. In the 1950s, 
most people in America knew the message of Jesus. They could articulate the gospel. That he died on the cross, rose from the dead. They, they knew those basics. And most people in America in the 50s respected the Bible. Even if they weren't followers of Christ, they respected the Bible as, as a special book. Can I tell you, that's changed. There are people that have never even read a word of the Bible living right down the street from you. There are people that cannot tell you anything about Jesus. Anything about the gospel. Nothing. Our society is becoming more and more secular. And as it becomes more and more secular, to reach them, we've got to get beyond three-point outlines and gospel tracts. I, I use gospel tracts because you can leave them with somebody if you don't have time to share with them further. But we've got to, we've got to go back to the basics with folks and talk about the creation and the fall and what God did to send us a Messiah and who Jesus is, his character and his nature, and what the cross means and what the resurrection means and how we receive that in our life. And listen to me. We've got to get to the point in, in church life where we are willing to have spiritual conversations with people that are ongoing. Because today, because our society has become so secular, very rarely are you going to meet somebody for the first time and lead them to faith in Christ. If that's happening with you, amen, praise the Lord, keep on keeping on. But probably it's going to take from me and you the desire to really love people and have a relationship with them, whether they get saved or not. We love them, and we're patiently explaining to them the ways of God. And letting them see how God has changed our life through Christ. It's going to take time. Epaphras rode into town. He didn't give them a three-point outline. Epaphras rode into town and gave them deep teaching about the gospel. The gospel must be shared. And then last, we'll finish with this. The gospel must be received. Look what Paul says in verse 6. The gospel came to you. Just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. Now look, and understood the grace of God in truth. So they heard it, and they understood it. Now I believe the, the translation understood is not a very good translation. The original Greek word is the word uh, gnosko. It carries with it the idea of experiential knowledge. So a better translation is this, listen. It says, the gospel's been bearing fruit, increasing even as, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and came to know it through the grace of God and truth. You heard the gospel, but then you came to know the gospel. And the word there is experiential knowledge. You came to experience the gospel. And it also, listen, is, I know you're packing up, but I want you to hear this. It's an aorist tense verb, which means there is a point in time when you came to know the gospel. Question. Has there been a point in time in your life when you've come to personally experience the gospel? There are two groups of people in this room. Those that have only heard the good news and those that have heard and experienced the good news. Which category are you in I believe in the Bible Belt. Listen, our churches are full of folks that have heard the good news, 
but have never personally experienced the good news. I've heard stories from other pastors of 70-year-old deacons getting saved. They say something to their pastor like this, I, I, I've been in church all my life. I've, I've, been a de- I've served in the church, but I've never been born again. I, I know all about the gospel. I've heard it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but I never personally experienced it at a point in time. Paul says to this church in Colossae, you heard it, and you came to know it. You came to experience it. It changed your life. And if you've never come to know the gospel, if you've never come to personally experience the gospel, today can be your day of salvation. 